Well, this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn to Matthew's Gospel. If you are visiting with us, we have been making our way through the Ten Commandments, as I said at the beginning. And so, we're in the Sixth Commandment this morning. And so, I want to go to Matthew's Gospel and to chapter 5. And we want to hear Jesus teaching on, on this commandment, on His Sermon on the Mount. And so, in Matthew chapter 5, uh, we're going to begin to read at verse 21. What is the commandment from Exodus 20? It's simply, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. And then we're going to pick up what Jesus says about it here, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21. If you're reading from a pew Bible, you'll find it there on page 960, 969 as we, as we begin. So, this is God's Word to us. You've heard, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brothers will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Amen. And we thank God for His Word to us, and we look forward to opening this up in just a few moments. Well, let's do turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew chapter 5, as we think about this commandment. And if we're honest, as we think about the commandments, we often view them like a, a list, a tick box list, as if we have the 10 down a page and we take our pen and we just tick them off. And as we've been working our way down the commandments, perhaps so far you're thinking, oh, my score's not too good. As you think about them one by one, not making idols, not taking the Lord's name in vain, and keeping the Sabbath day holy, you go down. And you arrive at the sixth commandment, murder, and you think, happy days. If I failed at all others, perhaps I'll have kept this one. And I'm not assuming that we all have, because sometimes that's not the case. But largely speaking, as we come to the sixth commandment, people think, yeah, I can tick that, and I can move on really quickly. It's simple. It's done. I've ticked it off. However, to, to have that understanding of the commandments is to misunderstand them. Remember what we're trying to repeat week after week as we look at these. These are words of life. These are not just simple tick box rules. These are not a cold download from the Lord, as if He just gives these to us and says, all the best, work, work away at those, try your best to keep them. No, Exodus 20 starts with being brought into relationship with God. This is a, a loving relationship between us and Him. And so He speaks to us as His people, and He says, this is the best way to live. This is why we've called the series Design for Life. This is how you will enjoy your life. This is how you will live it to the full. These words are not restrictive. These are life-giving words. 
These are beautiful words. If you hold on to these, then you will flourish. And so we arrive at the sixth commandment, and we think, okay, how, how, how does this apply to ourselves? As we try to honor the, the sixth commandment, uh, what do we see in it? Well, very simply, if, if we read it in the Hebrew, it simply reads with two words, no murder. No murder, really simple. And yet, there, there's so much more depth to this. The, the word used here is a, a word in Hebrew for intentional, premeditated murder. There's six different Hebrew words that refer to killing. And in this, it's the word for intentional, premeditated murder. And so the commandment is the prohibiting of any form of unjust killing. Now, that's really important for us, the words unjust killing. You shall not murder. And that means that we will not murder other humans, but it also means that we will not murder ourselves or commit murder against ourselves. So this raises the question at the very outset, where are the lines whenever it comes to this commandment? What does this commandment mean and what does it not mean? And sometimes we take this commandment and we can broaden it to mean so much and we have to be really careful about it. What does it mean and what does it not mean? And so I want to take just a couple of moments and, and go through some common questions as we think about this commandment. Question one, what should happen if I kill someone by accident? What, ha what, what should happen to me if I kill someone by accident? Have I, have I broken this commandment? Well, to kill someone by accident is a word that we know within our society as manslaughter. And what's the definition of manslaughter? It is unlawful killing that happens without intention. Unlawful killing that happens without intention. And so in Exodus 21 and in verse 13, it tells us this, but if he did not lie and wait for him, talking about murder or killing, an accidental killing, but if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. What's it saying? If there's an accidental killing, the Lord provides a place to flee, a place of refuge. And again in Deuteronomy 19, so the commandments appear for the first time in Exodus 20, and then we have them repeated in Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 19, we have the, the commandments explained. And so in, in Deuteronomy 19, in, in verse 4 and 5, it says this, it says, if anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the ax to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. And so accidental killing, an accidental form of, of killing, there's provision for it in the Scriptures. It's outside of this commandment. It's something, it's something different. There's provision made. There's a place of refuge, a city to flee to. The second question, does this commandment make capital punishment illegal? Does this commandment make capital punishment illegal? Well, no, it doesn't. Exodus 21 and verse 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. 
those who murder in Exodus 21 will be put to death by the state. Verse 14, if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. There is provision made within the Scriptures for state execution for those who have committed murder. The words take him and put him to death are very clear. It's the language of execution. And so the Bible is saying that the prohibition of murder in this commandment does not contradict capital punishment. Now, we may go on to have other arguments and other debates about why capital punishment is right or wrong. We can debate it for various reasons, but we cannot use the sixth commandment as a reason against it. And so, all we want to say, that's a massive debate, and we could pick it up at a later stage, and we could talk for various reasons, but we want to be really clear that we can't broaden this commandment to mean that. Third question, is this commandment teaching that we should never go to war? Well, again, Deuteronomy, we have to go there. Deuteronomy chapter 5, we have the repeat of the commandments. Then chapter 19 and 20, they're explained. And in chapter 20 and verse 1, it talks about when you go to war. Therefore, we know that there is such a thing as a just war. And therefore, just war is not prohibited by this commandment. In chapter 20, and in verses 10 through 20 of Deuteronomy, the Lord gives clear provision for a just war. And therefore, again, we can debate about what the grounds of a just war might be, but we cannot falsely apply this commandment in a blanket statement that means no war ever. Fourth and last question, does this commandment mean that I should not kill any animal? You, can, you know the scene, you're outside, uh, and for whatever reason, red spiders seem to, to congregate over concrete, don't they? And you're wearing your nice cream shorts because it's summer, uh, and, and you, you, you sit or you go to sit on the wall, and you see all of these little red spiders, and you think it's great fun to just go boom, 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 right? And your pal that's standing beside you says, whoa, 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 you, sh you shall not murder, you cannot murder, and applies this commandment to the little red spider. Again, that would be to totally misunderstand this commandment. We know that the Lord gives mankind dominion in, in Genesis, in the garden. He gives man dominion over the animals to rule. Now, that does not mean that we should be reckless with how we deal with animals. Be careful with the little red spiders. Okay. We treat animals with respect and with care. They are part of God's creation. We look after them, but we do have dominion over them. We are the top of the food chain in that regard. And therefore, it is wrong to apply you shall not murder to the killing of animals. So just be careful the next time you go and use those words. What we see from these four questions is this. We have to be careful. We have to be careful that we don't broaden this out too far, that we don't apply it wrongly into various aspects of our life. So now as we, as we get past the common questions and as we dig right into the heart of this commandment, we're going to see two things this morning, and this is the first, that life is precious. Life is precious. As someone who is not a father, I have minimal experience with babies. 
but lots of my friends have little ones, and you go around to their house, and what do they do? They say to you, John, do you want to hold this child? And you think, no, not really do I want to hold this child. But you're sitting on a chair, and, and you make sure that the coffee's well out of the way, and they hand you this little one, and I don't know if, if it's just me, but you freeze, right? And, and you just don't know what to do. You're holding this little one, and by 10, 15, 20 minutes later, you have pins and needles in your hands, you're sweating, you can't let go of it, you can't move, you feel so nervous. When someone asks you to hold their baby, you're on, you're on red alert almost. Senses heightened, anxiety levels spiking. Why? Well, it's because that we realize that this life that we're holding is of infinite value, and it's not mine. And depending on whose child it may be, we might be even more careful. Imagine uh, that Prince William uh, came to us and handed us George as he was born. I think all of us would, would freeze, even the most experienced would freeze. Because we, we would take good care and great care to make sure that the little one was safe in our arms. Now, what we must understand is this, that every human Every single human has been created in the image of God in Genesis 1 and verse 27. That's why we read it as our call to worship. Every human. God made man in His image. And therefore, God views every life as precious. Every single life. Life is given by God, and each human being reflects the glory of God in some way. That's why we take life Seriously, that's why life is precious. It's not just for some philosophical reason. It's because there's, there's an image of God in each and every human. Life given by God. He breathes life into us. So, we are the, the image bearers of God, every human. And therefore, every human, if you think about it like this, every human being has the, the imprint of God upon them. God's fingerprints are all over us. We've all been shaped by God. And what does that mean? It means that we carry something of who our God is and what He is like in our character. God is, uh, the Father is, He's a spirit, right? And so, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? If He's a spirit, how can we have a physical image? Here we're talking about the characteristics of God, the, the personality type of God, that, that things that flow from Him are in, in us as humans. And so, whenever we see acts of love, where, where does that love come from? That is a characteristic of God. And so, it's, it's His imprint upon us flowing out of us. Whenever we see acts of grace and mercy and forgiveness, and we see wisdom on display, all of these are characteristics given to us by the Father. And so, we know what, what it's like to have something imprinted, don't we? Everything that we wear probably has a label on it somewhere, and it'll be made by someone or made, by, made in a particular place. And in that sense, we all bear the, the mark of God, the, the tag of God. That's why life is so precious. We have God's hallmark on us. We're stamped by Him. And as we think about creation, back in Genesis, what are human beings? They are the, the crown of God's creation, aren't they? We are the pinnacle of the creation. We are His people. And we're set apart. 
We're set apart from the animals. We're different than them. We have the image of God. Here's what Kevin DeYoung says, really, really helpful on this. He says, no matter people's race or ethnicity, how they vote, their health or disabilities, their age or infirmities, every person has inherent worth and dignity. Each person is created to represent God. That is who we are by design. Now, lots of people in the world, they refuse to do this, don't they? But they can't get away from their hallmark. It's still embossed upon them, but they refuse to give full glory to the Lord. And this is why, this is why Jesus, in in Matthew chapter 5, if you have it open before you, Matthew chapter 5, this is why Jesus deals with life so seriously, seriously. It's the preciousness of life. And so in verse 21, you have heard it said, talking about the commandments, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And then he heightens it, verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You see how Jesus deals with this? He says that if, even if you're angry, and then he goes on, if you, if you insult your brother or if you abuse your brother, you will be liable. That's the translation in the ESV. And then if you go on to say that you are a fool to someone, you will be liable to the hell of fire. What's this all about? This is, well, it's serious business. Jesus stops us in our tracks whenever we think, happy days, I've kept this commandment. And He says to us, He says, we've got to deal with the very root of where murder comes from. And where does it come from? Well, it comes from this, this little trickle of anger. I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable. See, Jesus doesn't just want to deal with the consequence of the sin, the act of murder. He, he wants to deal with, with the very heart of it, the root of it. As anger simmers and boils just below the surface and then strikes out in murder, Jesus wants to deal with the spring from which that water flows. And the spring is resentment in our heart. And we do it all the time, don't we? Perhaps this morning, if there were children in your house, you you had an outburst of anger because they wouldn't put their shoes on for the 15th time that you had told them. Or the fury that you release as you're driving on your way to church and someone's going really, really slow and you don't want to be here two minutes past the start of 11 because you don't want to have to walk in in front of everybody and and for people to see you. And and you you let rip on the person driving in front. Or those thoughts that you have about the person that you really really dislike, the person that that you, you really hate in your life, and you think bad thoughts about them, you want bad things to happen to them. Are those thoughts that you have when you see the person who has wronged you and you wish ill upon them? Look, look at verse 22. It's not just the anger, but it's the insult or the abuse of the brother. If you start to speak in an abusive way about or to someone, Jesus is saying, well, you're in a sense murdering them. You're killing their character. And not only that, but if you should say to someone, you fool, what does the Lord mean by that? Well, this is, this is to, to degrade someone, to think that they're, they're unworthy, to, to write them off. They're pointless. They're a waste of life. The Lord says to do that, 
is to murder someone. And so this morning, there are trickles of sin that lead to the damn bursting anger that results in murder, and we must be careful with the trickles of sin. There are drips of sin that lead to the twisted, thought-out murder that is carried out with pleasure, and so we have to be careful. Anger is the seed that leads to this, and our call is to keep watch, keep watch on our feelings, because anger and hatred are toxic. And Jesus says in verse 23, they're so serious that you should not even worship. That if you come and you bring a gift to the altar, and that you remember, verse 23, that your brother has something against you, leave the gift and go and sort it out. Sort it out with your brother. Don't be angry with one another. Instead, sort it out before you come to worship. This must be dealt with. It's not as if we're allowed a certain portion or degree of resentment to fester within us. It must be dealt with. And why? Well, to fold all the way back, because we're made in the image of God. And to abuse someone with our words, to have anger in our hearts, to speak resentfully about someone, to, to deem their life as less worthy than ours, is to do what? Is to deem God's life unworthy. It's to speak against the one who gives life. It's to speak about the one who has breathed life into us. Life is precious and much, much shorter. Our second point, life is to be protected. Life is to be protected. We, we, we protect things that are valuable, don't we? We buy phone covers for our phones because we, we think they're, they're, they're so dear that we don't want to have to buy another one. So we get a, a good cover so that it doesn't break. We get insurance for our homes. We get insurance for our cars. Things that are valuable, we protect them. And we live in a society now where life is not valued. It's not valued because people have lost their understanding of point number one, that life is precious. People have lost their understanding that life is given by God. And this reveals itself largely in two places, doesn't it, in our society? The beginning of life and the end of life. Our Western society is losing or has lost the value of the unborn and the elderly. Now, as we talk about these things this morning, I want to be sensitive to those who perhaps have found themselves having made the wrong decision around terminating a life. And as we talk about these issues, what must we know? We must know that there is forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. But similarly, we must be really clear this is to go against all that the Lord says is good and right. To end a life in the womb, or to end the life of an elderly relative, or for them to end it themselves is totally wrong. It is murder. And as Christians, we should be those who are known as those who are most passionate about protecting life because it is precious, and we know why it is precious. Now, some would argue with us that an unborn baby is not life until it's born. Let's call that for what it is, wrong. 
Psalm 139, life begins at conception. John the Baptist in his mother Elizabeth's womb, he leaps whilst in the womb. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, as we think about beginning of life and end of life, we've got to remember that life is given by God, and it is taken away by God. And we should not intervene trying to be our own gods. As Christians, we should be those who value life most. So, how does that work its way out? As Christians, we should be known as those who care for mothers who are expecting in the best way possible, that we should care for little ones in the best way that we can whenever they are born, that we care for our elderly relatives, our elderly neighbors, that we go above and beyond in our love and in our care, that we should be known for caring for the sick, the history of our church, of, of the church worldwide, has been known for that. We should be passionate about health care. We should be passionate about the rights of the elderly and the unborn. Because, because of this commandment, because we know that the Lord calls us not to murder, because every life is precious, and every life is given by Him, and every life is worth protecting. And so, life is precious. It's given to us by God. It's worth protecting, and it's, it's worth so much to Him that what does the Lord do in terms of life? He sends His only Son, doesn't He? He sends His only Son to give us what? To give us eternal life. That's how precious it is. And God, God surveys the, the, the history of the world, and what do we see? We see that Cain and Abel, Cain strikes his brother down, I am not my brother's keeper, commits murder, and the Lord comes, and what does He do? He lays His life down for His brother. And He does all of this so that we can be forgiven, because look at chapter 5, look at verse 26, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. What's that about? It seems like a strange verse. The Lord's saying that, that all of us have committed hatred and anger. We're guilty of it. We're guilty of it most days. And if it's not through Jesus, then you will have to pay every penny of it. And Kevin DeYoung uses this helpful image in the Bible that every time that we're angry, imagine it's as if a great cup is being filled with God's wrath towards us. Every time that we sin, this, this cup fills up and it fills up and it fills up. And we'll have to pay for every penny of this in the judgment. But then he says, what happens through Jesus? Well, Jesus comes, and what does he pray? Let this cup pass from me. But then he takes the cup. He takes our cup. He takes the cup of wrath that we are due. What does he do? He drinks it down fully and completely. Jesus takes the wrath that we deserve. He takes the wrath that we deserve for breaking this commandment. And He gives us life. He comes to restore life. Isn't that what we see? He heals the sick. He casts out the demons. He raises people from the dead. Life is precious to the Lord. He protects life, and He gives eternal life. And so, life is to be treasured. 
And we need to be passionate about it. Passionate for those around us. Passionate to have one another built up and to have life and have it in its fullest sense. That's why we want to reach out with the good news of the gospel. See how it connects even into this commandment? To give people life so that they know Jesus and they can enjoy life, enjoy every good thing that He gives to us. And so, Christians, may we be people who love and promote and protect and see every human life as precious. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we think about this commandment, perhaps this morning we thought to ourselves, tick, I've kept this one, and yet we see the depth of it. We see that just below the surface of our hearts, anger hides. We insult and abuse one another. We call each other fools. We deem others' lives to be unworthy. Father, forgive us. Because whenever we do such things, we speak not just against the person, but against you, the life giver. Whenever we strike out, we strike not just against a person, but we strike against you, the one who has given life. And so, Lord, would you change us and make us into people who are passionate about life, people who protect life, who see it as precious. And we thank you that we sit here today as those who enjoy eternal life through the sacrifice of your Son. We thank you that grace means that we did not have to drink the cup, but Jesus, you took it in our place. You died, and you let a murderer called Barabbas go free, and you let murderers like us be forgiven. We thank you, Lord. Bless us to our hearts, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.